Pour one out for a real one, Marianne Williamson. Oh my gosh. I thought yes. about writing a skit for it, um, but it just feels too serious of a... <laughs> of a loss. Yeah. Uh, can we get some Fs in the chat going for um, Orb Mother, our spiritual guru spiritual in these leader. dark psychic wars that are uh, constantly unfolding? I hope she stays a uh, political celebrity. I hope that she's like a pundit that people are constantly go to. And they're like, what's Marianne Williamson's take on this given situation? She's yeah. like on the media. and I would love that, but I don't <laughs> think it's going to happen. Because like even us who from our inception were quite enamored with Marianne, like even we yeah. haven't talked about her in ages. And yeah, I yeah. just don't think she kept up enough relevance in the election to really have a... A celebrity personality. Yeah, but forward. now that she's not, you know, an official threat, maybe, maybe they'll, you know. It's true. I'm sure she'll still be like a self-help, you know, guru kind of thing going on. So we should say we are hashtag cursed to not have David for this episode. He is in Shenzhen, China, uh, giving a participating in a panel on software and urbanization. So he's ha- he's I've been texting with him. He had a really good time there but he is looking forward to being home. So he'll be back tomorrow evening. So it's just me and Chris. Ironweed's goodwill ambassador to China. (laughs) David Banks will, uh, unfortunately, will he be back for next episode? He will. Awesome. And we could have just put off recording for a couple of days, but I knew he was going to be so fucking exhausted getting back that he was probably not going to. And the semester starts soon, so. Yeah, I'm sure he's got enough email backlog to keep him busy for a while. Yeah. Well, I guess he's probably checking his email. They have really good internet uh, in China, I hear. He's had really good, and his data was really, really excellent, too. Cool. Um, yeah, he had what, a really what, good time. What was he presenting on or uh, being a panelist for? It was a panel on software and urbanization, which is pretty much his wheelhouse. I don't really know the specifics of it, because I don't even think that he'd completed his materials until he was like already on the plane there nice but, um, but yeah i mean they invited him to come and they paid for it and so pretty good oh, yeah. deal free well, trip to china well i expect to report back i want to know all about it that's one country i've really wanted to visit um he was very excited that he was able to reach the uh handrails in the subway system there interesting because china is kind of built for a person of david's stature and my stature short people rise up <laughs> Yeah, I, I like I love the, all the pictures that he's been posting. He's it, been posting some. There is some amazingly strange stuff. Well, in, um, yeah, I think if you had just taken American culture, uh, like on a street level, all at once for the first time, you'd probably be like, "There's some weird stuff." I don't know, man. I've never <laughs> seen a building with a cat's ass and that says like in a fart, fart something. I don't remember what exactly it was. I should look it up, but. Uh, yeah. yeah, but you have seen like a gigantic like uh, neon like hot dog or something along like on the side of a building or, yeah. uh, you know. <laughs> Maybe I'm being very American centric and thinking that, I don't know. I'm sure there's a lot of strange shit. But you have seen a gigantic billboard that says game of theft, report welfare fraud now, arrests are coming. Oh my God. <laughs> Dude, that is so like a boring dystopia ship. Yeah. Which is a great subreddit if you're not sub to it. Uh, a boring dystopia. Yeah, that's... And I mean, there's all kinds of like dystopian billboards all over this damn country. Yeah. there In Florida, there was this massive one. I mean, it was the size of like three billboards and it just said, sinners will burn, but Jesus saves. <laughs> nice. Yeah. 
Uh, nice. Yeah, super nice. Growing up country in Florida was really, you see a lot of shit. <laughs> B- biggest stars and bars in the country right down the street from my house. And it says, message from the volunteer fire department of, you know, the, whatever county, Florida. <laughs> <laughs> uh, They're like, yeah, no, I'm emphasis sure. on the volunteer. You can't, for- <laughs> you can't force me to save you. <laughs> Yeah, I'm definitely America has plenty of weird shit that I'm probably we're obviously inoculated against. But David was saying like they went from they had dinner at this restaurant where the they, they like couldn't even figure out how to order anything because it was so Chinese. Yeah. Um, and then afterwards they went to a bar where Mickey Nicki Minaj was playing and everybody was drinking Corona. Nice. So. All right, and some breaking news. Um, apparently, a police officer just t-boned a friend of mine, Danny who is just driving through an intersection. And according to this, um, I, what it looks like a press release from the Troy police posted on Sidewinder Photography, which is a, a Facebook page that hosts the images from the accident. The Troy police were responding to a private fight in a home where a minor had called a reporting a fight between two older brothers, uh, which possibly involved a knife. And this article or you know this press release basically stresses how there is very low staffing for the Troy police right now. And therefore they're, you know, stretched very thin and they're all having to work overtime and uh, multiple times it sort of like editorializes and talks about how the officers, you know, uh, the exhausted officers or the overworked officers, like, you know, reporting on the scene or, and um, then at the end of the article, basically talking about how this guy just smashed into Danny's car or van rather, both the vans were totaled. It says that the city of Troy's police department's call volume is up and officers are stretched thin by working large amounts of overtime to keep the public safe in Troy. While currently only eight police officers working per shift in a city where call volume is not going down and apartment buildings are going up in downtown Troy and other parts of the city, should have city residents worried about public safety. With close to 20 open positions for officers and detectives in the Troy Police Department that have not been filled, but current officers are filling the gaps in shifts to keep the public safe. Overworked officers present a safety concern to the public and themselves, but who knows how long before those positions will be filled. That's a pretty crazy statement right there. Overworked uh, officers present a safety concern to the public and themselves. But well, Yeah, they might accidentally, accidentally, I'm using air quotes here, you can't see them, shoot an innocent civilian. Yeah, or T-bone, you know, a van. Yeah. Like in a residential could have killed him. I mean, yeah. like, thank God he's okay, reasonably yeah. okay. But yeah, that he could have killed, killed him. Yeah, I don't know the extent of Danny's injuries. He apparently has no memory of it because... Uh, Holy the, shit. He said, you know, the, he posted a selfie on Instagram. So apparently he's upright and he's conscious and he's able to work a smartphone. But he says, I got T-boned by a cop or so I'm told. Um, oh my god! I wonder if he has a concussion or something. Yeah, I mean, I that's hope awful. I hope he has swift and complete recovery. Like this is outrageous. So, with uh, regards to this overworked, understaffed police department, this is like a bit speculative. I didn't get this from a journalistic out- outlet, but I've seen this mentioned a couple of times in the Troy subreddit, and also back when back in the day when I was on Facebook, people would talk about this. People who have reason to know that this is the case, which was this understaffing problem is not organic. It's actually a desire on the part of many of the police working in the Troy PD who want overtime, time and a half and double time as much as they can get. And 
this was, I saw a lot of this complaint back a couple of years ago when, you know, they rolled out the annual budget and it was something like over 60% of the city budget was going to emergency services. And that a lot of that was being eaten up by paying cops overtime to fill in these vacancies. So according to a few people, and once again, like I can't verify these sources, although it seems to make a good deal of sense to me, that it's ultimately the PBA, the Police Benevolent Association, that is putting up barriers to hire, to filling these positions. It would be cheaper for the city to hire new cops to fill these mm-hmm. these gaps than it is for the, obviously, than it is for them to pay overtime to all of these other cops. Yeah, even with um, uh, the additional benefits packages and everything that they would have to be doing. I mean, as far as I know, yeah, yeah. that's, that's, and I like, it, I don't say this to like state it as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. but rather to give us, to, to inject a bit of skepticism into that claim that, you know, these are, that we desperately want and need to fill these positions. I don't ever see the cops advertising, please apply to be, you know, in the Troy PD. Like, I don't ever see yeah. anything in the newspapers or anything like that. So I don't know. Also mentioned in the article, they were able to retrieve uh, security cam footage from all of the neighbors in that area. So that's more, you know, tying into the whole ring thing we were talking about earlier. But it goes on to say Chief Owens uh, announced a few days ago due to bail reform, he could possibly have to remove officers from patrol in order to process and prepare evidence under the new discovery law as he only has one person that is handling the job of collecting evidence and preparing it to go to the district attorney's office. The new bail reform laws are also placing heavy strains on police departments that have large amounts of call volume and that are already understaffed. So, you know, just another little thing on top after, you know, this police officer just like completely slammed into and totaled his vehicle as well as Danny's in a residential neighborhood, like flew through a stop uh, sign, I imagine, as like the cars were like 50 feet apart from one another after the, um, the, the collision. Holy shit. So yeah, they're just, you know, saying, oh, and by the way, like the reason this happened is because uh, y'all got bail reform. So, you know, How because, dark. because, you know, you, you fought for trying to end cash bail or whatever uh, was recently announced by um, Governor Cuomo. I forget the, uh, the, the details, but. Well, I, and the, essentially the statement is, oh no, now we have to spend too much fa- time actually collecting evidence to charge people. Mm-hmm. Like, holy shit, what are your resources supposed to go towards if not collecting evidence against people who you want to charge with a crime? Like, <sighs> I don't know. Apparently racing around, but you know, I don't know. They were responding allegedly to a uh, domestic disturbance that, you know, they potentially could have done something for. Um, I mean, yeah, that's good. Like, it's good that they're, you know, if somebody calls in a domestic disturbance, yeah, that's they, kind of like one of the be, things that we have cops for. Yeah. Or, or um, respond uh, immediately, but. But there's also like, how much time are you saving by rushing through? I mean, if they were 50 feet apart, that cop had to have been going at least, what, 40, 50 miles an hour? Going to like, you have to also do a cost benefit analysis of how much quicker are you actually, Troy's not a huge city. How much quicker are you actually going to get there? I don't know. I mean, I guess it's easy to like Monday morning quarterback, but it does, uh, it's just, it's really, I guess I would say in poor taste to try to blame this accident on bail reform. That's serious. That's some layers of ideology happening right there. Yeah. Anyway. Well, best wishes to Danny. Hope he has a speedy recovery. Yeah. Um, I'm sure nothing will happen to that cop. He might get an award or something for being so brave. But yeah, we'll follow uh, the story if there are any new developments that are, would be interesting. One other 
cop story. And we, like, we won't spend too much time on this because we are, despite how much we cover cops, not a cop podcast. But this is just too fucking bizarre to not mention. Texas police officer fired for giving a sandwich full of feces to a homeless man wins his job back. This has taught me to stop acting childish and making stupid, baseless jokes, Officer Matthew Luckhurst wrote in a statement. Wait, he he did what? He served what to a a homeless person? So while on patrol, he's a bike cop. I think that all of them have like an inferiority complex. I guess runs counter to my whole theory of putting them in lime green uh, EW Beatles. uh, I think segues would help. Yeah. Nobody I, looks cool riding a Segway. I, I do like the idea of the um, the referee uniform for police mm, officers. Yeah. Because, like, people already have the symbology of the referee, like, in their mind, mm-hmm. you know? And the ref it doesn't just, like, pull out his Glock and just, like, unload a clip into, you know, the, uh, the scrum. So, basically, what happened here was in 2016, Luckhurst found two slices of bread and a few pieces of dog feces on his patrol. He put the dog shit between the two pieces of bread and put them in a food container and then left the disguised faux meal next to a homeless person. And uh, he said that this was his attempt to clear the no trespassing area that apparently was being occupied by this non-complying quote-unquote transient man good god the wording in these articles is so fucked the guy the the homeless gentleman picked up the food container smelled it and threw it on the ground so he was indefinitely suspended for this but the suspect that him then he was terminated after that but the termination was overturned because he wasn't terminated within 180 days now the reason he wasn't terminated within 180 days is because he injured himself and was on temporary leave which basically, it's it's basically like a fucking loophole that he wasn't quote unquote terminated, even though he was on indefinite suspension. So he got his job back. That's pretty exciting. However, he also has a second indefinite suspension awaiting appeal from June 2016, shortly after the dog shit incident, because he and another male officer intentionally defecated in the women's bike patrol restroom, smearing shit all over the toilet seat and leaving defecation in the stall. This guy's got a poop thing. And this guy had, yeah, he, and even the picture of him, he's got a shitty and grin in his cop photo. It's a bad look. It's a bad look. It's, it's, uh, you know. This ain't it, chief. Yeah. Yikes. This guy's got a better, this guy's going to retire fatter and longer than like anybody I know. He's got a sweet pension and. He did swear to protect and serve shit sandwiches. <laughs> We All just right. didn't hear that last part. He said that under his breath. <laughs> so let's talk about this pretty fucking cool document dump. <laughs> Speaking of dumps. Oh, my God. <laughs> good, um, good, good transition. Thank you. Thank you. So the daughter of Thomas Hoffler, who was basically a consultant for the GOP in gerrymandering all of their various uh, fiefdoms across the the country, uh, who died in 2018. His daughter, Stephanie Hoffler, found a bunch of hard drives and a ridiculous number of thumb drives, like something like 30 thumb drives that contained documents and files that he had used to help Republicans gerrymander their districts. Something very interesting about this is that Thomas pronounced the word gerrymander with a hard G 
in honor of the former U.S. Vice President El- Elbridge Gary, who pioneered the practice uh, in 1812. So gerrymandering, I, I say we, I say we, Gary, we make it happen. Gary, gerrymandering, gerrymandering. Like I think like it sounds more Gary, evil, but with an e. I think it sounds more evil because, like Gary, Gary Man, yeah, everyone loves Jerry, right? But Gary's a fucking <laughs> prick. Is Jerry the cat or the uh, the mouse? Tom, I think it's Tom the cat. is the cat. Okay, yeah. So Jerry, yeah, yeah. Jerry's uh, you know the the underdog. That's Jerry's like... a piece of shit though. <laughs> he He's really mean to Tom. <laughs> He's really really. That's mean. that's a controversial take. Maybe not controversial. Yeah. Uh, hot Ironweeds take. Yeah, Jerry I, was a piece of shit. I th- I think that you're just you know sympathetic to the feline cause at this point. I think that you know all the um, what, that is entirely possible. What, what, what's that uh, brain parasite that's uh, reported to? Uh, oh yeah. Um, it's not like trichinosis. Toxoplasmosis? Yeah, toxoplasmosis or whatever. Yeah. Oh, I've definitely got that shit. Yeah. The magic power of having to, uh, you know, clean a cat litter box, just infecting your brain with cat-loving nanoviruses. I definitely <laughs> love cats. So, yeah, I think it's working. Pretty sure that's the way medical science works. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, she has already released the files on, in, for, on a website called thehufflerfiles.com. And... I guess, like, I haven't gone through any of these. I don't really know, like, what exactly is in these files. But she says that she's releasing them in the interest of transparency. And I imagine that, you know, hopefully journalists will be going through all these and, like, gleaning for us the important information about what we basically need to know about it. But it will be interesting to see, like, what kinds of metrics they use to determine how to gerrymander districts and what kind of like legislative tactics go into this process? Because I really do think that like gerrymandering is one of the most anti-democratic practices that exists in this country. And in the off chance that you don't know what gerrymandering is, uh, it's simply the redrawing of districts to basically prescribe outcomes uh, that are in your favor. And it's very, very, very common. And it's pretty much everywhere in uh, the political a reality of, of America. Yeah, Thomas Hoffler himself put it perfectly when he said, in a democracy, voters choose their politicians. With gerrymandering, politicians choose their voters. Mm, yep. And so it Succinct. essentially makes it impossible to knock out an incumbent. You know, I mean, it's not just Democrats do it too, but they're just not as good at it. As with so many things, Democrats do it too, <laughs> they're just not as good at it. And yeah, it just basically makes it near impossible to knock out an incumbent because of the way the districts are drawn. Some, you know, a, a white wealthier middle-class vote just counts more than, mm. you know, a, a marginalized population's vote based on how they're drawn. It was actually an interesting tidbit. When we were in college, there was a professor from my school who was running for a city council or no state rep maybe. And his opponent demanded that the districts be drawn such that it split our college campus down the middle in the interest of like not tipping the scales in his favor. And so like, our campus had to go to two different polling locations based on where this line had been drawn, which is totally ridiculous because we were like a st- literally a stone's throw away from our compatriots. So one also fun element of this story is that Stephanie Hoffler says to journalists who's interviewing her that she is not a Democrat, though she has voted Democrat in the past. And the reason she doesn't identify as a Democrat is because she identifies as an anarchist. She says, the reason I don't identify as a Democrat is because I'm an anarchist. I don't believe that we're going to really find solutions to the deeper problems of inequality in a system that demands a hierarchy, which is, by definition, unequal. 
Where's the lie also? Where yeah. is the lie? <laughs> I know all of our tanky listeners, all two and a half of you will hate that we like uh, stand an anarchist, but just wait till the end of the episode when we stand an anarchist real hard. <laughs> but yeah, um, so, you know, maybe there's evidence to suggest that uh, the the continuous adage that, you know, this coming generation is going to save us has a little, uh, you know, maybe this generation is going to save us. Yeah, <laughs> like, maybe. Ima- imagine how frustrating it would be if, like, you spent your whole life trying to, like, trick people out of having any agency against you. And then your daughter is like, actually, fuck my dad, fuck his legacy, fuck everything <laughs> he ever stood for, fuck the government, <laughs> like, like he, I, I'm, I'm here for the people, like, l- let's conquer this bread, and yeah. <laughs> just, like, releases all the documents. Yeah, it fucking rules. So, her father's business par- partner, Dale Oldham, took a lot of, removed a laptop and a desktop computer from Hoffler's work files, or with Hoffler's work files, after his death. And Stephanie tells attorneys, Dale got all the good stuff. Um, And he's basically claiming that these are all essentially like intellectual property that, you know. Yeah, I mean, it was was probably stuff he was paid to do. So it was like the documents and their conclusions are the property of whoever paid him the service. It's, It's a lot like engineering. Like if I design a product for a company, like I don't own that because I designed it, you know, and even if I have those files on my personal computer at home, which I shouldn't by uh, IP protection policy, but if if I were and they were to be like, you know, given up by my granddaughter or whatever, I think it would be a breach at least of my contractual obligations to keep it secret um, by allowing it to be compromised in such a way. It's yeah. really, it's really her, da- her dad's fault. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I guess what I'm saying on this one. Yeah. So par- actually part of the sanctions proceedings related to the citizenship question on the census mm-hmm. in that lawsuit, the plaintiff's attorneys have asked uh, the U.S. district judge to allow them to subpoena Oldham, this person who was a business partner of Hoffler. So it'll be interesting to see if they're able to get any of those documents through that lawsuit. Mm. I don't know. I hope I hope to find out more about what these documents might be able to reveal or potentially like build some type of public support behind uh, ending gerrymandering as a uh, a fundamental approach. I think this is like GIF. I just can't handle calling it gerrymandering. <laughs> I really can't. <laughs> I have to say to be like a bit to to let my cynical side bleed out a bit. I just don't really see how like I'm all for transparency, and I think that it's better that these documents be in the public eye than not, if for no other reason than to just, like, remind people of gerrymandering and how fucking awful it is. But I don't really see the release of these documents, like, having a big practical effect, because it's just so, it's just so entrenched. And, yeah, it's you know, also until- not news to anybody. They're just like, oh, yeah, this thing that, like, we obviously knew is, like, the backbone of, like, the, you know a lot of politics like and the the approaches on how to uh, maintain secure power even if your policies are like largely unsupported yeah it's just an anti-democratic practice that we have all decided we just put up with because we're essentially powerless to do anything significant about it but uh yeah shout out and props yeah you go girl yeah you get the iron weeds um stamp of approval yeah Comrade of the week. <laughs> Comrade of the week. We had pig of the week, and now we have Comrade of the week. <sighs> so, 
foreignpolicy.com has released a very interesting breakdown of which Democratic candidates uh, national security employees are donating to. And I feel like this is a nice little snapshot of who they appeal to. And it really shows like who's evil and who's not, (laughs) frankly. (laughs) So for combined contributions from the State Department, Military Justice Department, and the Department of Homeland Security, Bernie is killing it at $212,000. Second is Pete at $152,000. And then the rest are kind of down the list. But when you get into the specifics and you see like what each kind of like branch of this national security apparatus does, that's when it starts to get really interesting. So let's take the State Department. Buttigieg has raised twice of what his runner-up Elizabeth Warren has from the State Department, which is, I don't know, I think, I think pretty interesting. And oh, and Trump is not raising fuck all from State Department employees. Yeah. So I don't know if part of it is like a, like a Buttigieg campaign aide says that it's because Pete is a veteran. But the military, the, the, the troops themselves. Are- so, yeah, so we can get to we can jump to the military if you want to. The military is get going for Big Dick Bernie hard. <laughs> uh, Bernie has one hundred and eighty one thousand dollars in military contributions. Second only to or first Pete Buttigieg being second at only seventy nine thousand. And it also shows how many of the troops are giving to Trump. and Yeah, which he's even below. He's third after Pete with 62000 which is so little. Holy shit. Um, yeah, they don't like him. They don't like him, folks. He has pretty, I, I think that his favorability has finally dropped below 50% among m- active military service members. I'm pretty sure I saw that. I'd have to look it up to be certain. But So, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Now, again, you get to the Department of Homeland Security, which I would have guessed, much like the State Department, would go hard for Buttigieg. But it's actually pretty evenly split between Mayor Pete and Bernie. But yeah, the, uh, the, the one that concerned me the most was the um, candidate committee and outside money, uh, which was, I think, the final graph they showed, mm-hmm. uh, which has uh, Trump, I think, out garnishing in that specific department and to the largest uh, extent all the other uh, candidates by a a big margin 250 million dollars is what he's getting from uh basically like can like committee and dark money now bernie is second though he's second with 73 million yeah after that's liz and then pete and then tom steyer who's what the fuck but the 73 million uh, number isn't that like almost like a cumulative number like, is that all, and, uh, you know, outside money being like, it comes including f- just people who aren't in the, the no. national security? This has nothing to do with national security. I think they yeah. just gave, they just threw this out, this last number out to give you a sense of like how little money is coming from these various government agencies mm-hmm. versus the actual quote unquote dark money. So this comes from outside money includes leadership packs, super PACs, uh, and 501c4 dark money outlets. Interesting. Yeah, because it's got Bernie slightly uh, above Warren in that uh, department as well. Yeah. And so then Bouchage. And then Steyer. Yeah. Who, I mean, I, who's donating to Steyer? I don't fucking know. Why? Listen, Why is this guy still able you, to pull this off? Like, if you meet somebody who has donated to Tom Steyer, you need to kick them <laughs> in their shins and or, say, what is wrong with you? Or at least just like take a, a like a... a photo of them just you know for documentary uh evidence just we need to start understanding who the steyer contingency really is because 
It's um, very confusing to me. He could do anything with all this money. And he's just <laughs> like throwing it away. He's just, he might as well fucking take it into his backyard and light it on fire. There's no reason for Tom Steyer to be spending all this money trying to be president. Especially when it's not even a, an original plot. Like we've seen Brewster's Millions, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, I know, you know, Tom, like if there's some weird thing where like the ghost of your dead uncle isn't going to like let you keep the fortune unless you like <laughs> run a losing campaign for president. But like, come on. Like, you need to let this campaign give up the ghost. You know what I'm saying? Seriously. Please do. In a related note, I thought maybe, Chris, we could play a little game if you want. Oh, please. So, Act Blue has made their database of donors from specific occupations available. And so you can basically go through, and there are like hundreds and hundreds of occupations listed, and you can just pick one and see who they are supporting. So I was thinking, Chris, why don't you name an occupation you can think of, and I'll see if it's in this list and tell you who they're supporting. Okay. Engineer, my own occupation. Good one. Engineers support Bernie by 31%. Second second is Warren with 12%. So Bernie's way out ahead with engineers. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That is pretty interesting. Interesting. Okay. Because I tend to think of engineers as a bit conservative. But I think that that just Largely. kind of goes to show that Bernie's populism and, and like class politics is appealing to yeah. even, you know, what you would think of as a, as a conservative demographic. Yeah. And as far as inequality uh, is concerned, like engineers are, you know, part of the professional class that like tend to fall on the I'm actually benefiting from this inequality as opposed to like being screwed by it. Right. And yeah, that's interesting. All right. Pick another one. Okay. How about uh, school teachers? Teachers support Bernie with 29% of the contributions, 20, 30% of the contributions. Warren comes in second at 14. These are like big leads. Like the places where Bernie is leading, they are, they are by and large like very significant leads. All right. How about nurses? Nurses support Bernie by with 30% of contributions second to, with Buttigieg being second at 13%. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Warren is a close third at 11%. Uh, yeah, I didn't, I would not have expected nurses to be uh, pro Buttigieg. Me either. I mean, Medicare for all who want it is like not typically, I, I, I would, it's not typically popular with people working in the medical industry. Yeah. So that's, that's, that one's pretty interesting. Let's pick one. Let's pick one that maybe isn't immediately obvious. Oh, he's huge with Pete's drivers, by the way, as well. All right. How about models? Like people who are just professionally attractive. How about models? Let's see here. Big industry. It is a big industry. I mean, like if you look at the valuation of... Especially with like InstaThoughts and stuff. Yeah. If you look at the valuation of uh, web platforms, how much of the value of those web platforms are simply the beautiful people on those web platforms? Absolutely. Stock (laughs) images are like... Yeah. Yeah. Doing, you know, um, viral marketing for uh, cosmetics, you know, instructables. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, absolute Chad, Bernie Sanders has received 54% of contributions from models. Wait, 54%? 54%. So... The majority of models. Yeah, the majority of models. <laughs> they they have it out for, for Bernie. And I guess we shouldn't assume that all models are female. All right, like, well, there are plenty of man models. 
What, what about the next, the next uh, most donated to <laughs> this models? Is, this is weird. The next is uh, Harris with 5.7%, Warren at 5.2%, Yang at 4.4%, and then it just keeps going down and dwindling. Wow. Biden has the least Five. at 3.4%. Models are not into Biden. Yeah. Or- <laughs> <laughs> so <Wow>. strange. <laughs> So, yeah, Bernie has more support amongst models than all the other candidates combined. Yes. And, like, if you go to any of the working class, any working class job, like movers, laborers, construction workers, anybody in hospitality, they all go for Bernie by huge margins, often over 50%. Based on the fact that they're all allegedly, like, neck and neck, you know, in, like, the 20s or whatever for support uh, in various polls, there's got to be, like, a bunch of other industries that are, like, very pro- you know, a, a lot of other candidates, like you pointed out, like everybody in the CIA wants their boy Mayor Mayo P in yeah. to be uh, president. Uh, so does the clergy, apparently. Uh, you know, ministers go for Buttigieg uh, at twenty-one percent of donations. Next is Warren at eleven, and then Bernie comes in after at eleven. So I heard something in Reuters news the other day about uh, rumors of Mike Pompeo being preened for a potential presidential run after Trump. Oh, God. Uh, and I was just like, you can't be God President damn. Pompeo. That's that's dumb. That sounds dumb. <laughs> but like, I think that America right now is like way more pro CIA than I would expect them to be. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because it, it, we're dumb. We're just a country <laughs> of fucking rubes. I don't know like how else to explain that. Let's see who. Uh, so mortgage bankers, loan, loan officers also support Bernie the most. Bernie and then Buttigieg. Odd. Uh, Right? Yeah. Very strange. All of the fear mongering uh, of the Financial Times and Wall Street Journal and Mayor Bloomberg and everybody who's, you know, supposedly has their best interests at heart. Yeah. Huh. This seems like a lot of evidence of class traitorship. Yeah. Well, I also think that it's that people realize people working in these industries are the most likely to know how desperately they need reform because Mm. they see how the sausage is made. Mm. And when you're, you know, when it's an essentially practically like an anonymous contribution, you don't have to fess up to being like a dirty Democratic socialist to your friends. You can just drop Bernie a couple of bucks and, you know, it can be your little secret. (laughs) Like, that's how I imagine. Between you and God. Right. Yeah. Uh, guess who opera singers like? Uh, <laughs> Yang. No, Bernie. Thirty-five point eight percent. Uh, Yang's getting four percent. It's just so interesting to go through these all of the, and I'll post the uh, a link to this website where you can do this, and we'll put it in the show notes. But it's like incredible that you can go to almost every single one of these occupations and just find like. Firefighters, 36% go to Bernie. Fast food, that's going to be pretty. Yeah, 58%. Oh, wow. um, Top four occupations by candidate for Sanders, solar voltaic uh, installers. Is isn't that weird? One. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't realize that that was such a large workforce. Um, vet assistants is the next. Interesting. Bartenders, third. Butchers and meat cutters, fourth. Psychiatric technicians is uh, fifth. I want to know what the fuck a psychiatric technician is. I, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) 
know. Having spent a, having spent a third of my life in and out of psychiatrists' offices, I have never seen what I would call a technician. But. In, in the sixes, fast food workers. Yeah, that's wild. That there are fast food workers that are like, you know, what I can do with this extra X amount of dollars is like give directly to Bernie Sanders. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Be, but, being willing to donate. You're. We are already paltry. And I mean, this is something that we we touched on. Uh, maybe in the bonus, maybe in the last episode, I don't remember. But, you know, this is sort of like very twisted notion that anybody who's supported by like small, like many, many contributions of small amounts yeah. is like supported by the privileged. The small you donor know? class. The small donor <laughs> class, as as they call it, which yeah. is so disgusting. And now you look at these people who are contributing and it's like bartenders and fast food workers and a couple of, you know, like middle class or upper middle class occupations as well. Yeah. But, you know, having spent a good portion of my adult life as a bartender, I can promise you none of them are wealthy folk. Like, you know, nobody's getting rich off of bartending. And like certainly fast food workers, I would not say come from a privileged class by and large. So it kind of like reveals the lie that is that very convenient talking point for people who are getting donations in wine caves. So you you were talking about mathematics because the math thing. It actually turns out that Warren has the top for, uh, for, out of mathematicians, and that's at twenty nine percent of mathematicians are supporting Warren. And then her top six are archivists, interesting, what? librarians, which are apparently not archivists. <laughs> <laughs> I thought those things were the same thing. Um, historians, which are also not archivists. <laughs> so those are also different things. Proofreaders and copy makers, that, that's an unsung, unsung uh, industry. A lot, a lot of people do that. Uh, and I then, almost got into that. And then survey researchers. She has the most boring donor class ever. None of those people are having fun. The most, the most wonkish, the most like, particular. I'd of say. course, yeah. You wonks know, the, love a good wonk. Because like, survey researchers, it's people who want to drill down into the nitty gritty. It's like archivists, librarians, historians, once again, three different things. Proofreaders and copy mark, uh, makers, markers, copy markers, and uh, s- survey researchers. Yeah, very interesting. All right, so let's see what Yang's got. Yeah, who All are right. Yang's? Pizza delivery drivers. Oh, that's who it was, pizza delivery drivers. Cleaners of vehicles and equipment. Computer operators. HVAC mechanics and installers. Mail sorters and processors. And transportation security screeners. Interesting. The TSA is out for Yang. Yeah. Ah, Yang Gang. Same thing with mail sorters, HVAC Bernie does have more support from mail carriers. I don't know about sorters, but from mail carriers than any other candidate. Uh, Does it show Biden's at all? Yeah, it does. Uh, All right. Oh, I see his. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Number one, judges. (laughs) Number one. (laughs) Two, court reporters, uh, which I... Okay. So like that's like a journalist that does court record journalism? Uh, I think that no, I think court reporters are oh maybe. I don't know. I th- I don't know. Are they talking about like the uh the person like who stenographers? Writes, <laughs> stenographer that's <laughs> I don't like think so. typing in shorthand like I don't know. Maybe we should look up what is a court support, court reporter. Uh then it's travel agents, police officers. Tra- I didn't even know travel agents still existed. This this building that we're recording in right now was most recently a travel agency. Okay, so a court reporter is a stenographer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so he's got the he's got the uh, the he's courtroom the locked down. Yeah. You know the courtroom, the wing of the Democratic Party. Travel agents for some fucking reason. Who's next, Chris? Police officers. Oh. 
Interesting. Police officers, uh, real estate agents and brokers. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And correctional officers and jailers at 14. That's all I need to know about Biden wow. is these categories of who is giving to him. So, something that I also keep forgetting about Buttigieg and why he, he appeals, because even though he is uh, an out homosexual, he's otherwise a Catholic, right? Mm-hmm. And so he also has the clergy and funeral directors. Funeral directors is very uh, interesting. You know, vote locked up. And interior designers. Ah, interesting. So yeah, well, f- flight attendants and pilots. What is happening in our skies that is making them go mayo? I don't know what. He's probably just really nice to them and travels a lot. <laughs> yeah, he's probably just be. like super nice. He like brings them like special treats. He's like, yo, I got you a Toblerone. I'm like, yeah. All right. So we'll post all of these in the show notes and you can go through and look. They're pretty, they're pretty interesting. There's a whole graphs about candidate support relative to educational attainment. Shocker, Bernie is really popular with less educated people. There's um, income. So shocker, Bernie is really popular with people who don't make a lot of money. Um, and it's really like just inverse for like Bernie versus a lot of these other candidates. So we'll post it. You can take a look for yourself. Podcaster not listed as an occupation in this chart, which I think is I, I think it's discrimination against podcasters <laughs> who are, who should be a protected I class. I feel attacked. <laughs> you know, you know what they should have done with that cop? They should have just made him eat the fucking sandwich. <laughs> just like been like, all right, this is it. You're still going to be a cop after this. And we're going to like, you know, let this one slide, but you have to eat the whole thing in front of, in sandwich. front of, in front of the whole city. Oh, like have yeah. like a parade and have yeah, everybody like, it, yeah, march into it. Yeah, the- I want a public, uh, you know, put it out in the newspapers like a week or two before. Let that, that dog shit sandwich just sit in the sun for a while. I think he should have to eat, instead of 180 day suspension, he should have to eat 180 dog shit sandwiches. Yes. Yes, I agree. I think that that's a much more reasonable, because that's going to cost the city like nothing. Mm-hmm. Shit, I can make you a hundred. I, I will travel and make these dogs uh, shit sandwiches for this cop. I will do the labor of producing and distributing this, uh, you know, uh, you could, punishment. You could have for like a month beforehand, just all the dog walkers take their little baggies <laughs> of poop and deposit them in some receptacle in the center of downtown. And then, you know, head on over to the Wonder Bread uh, store, which I don't know if they have those up here. In Florida, they have whole Wonder Bread stores. What? Where you can go right to the store and get fresh Wonder Bread. Yeah. Wow. So head over there. This is in Texas, so maybe they have them too. Just get stacks on stacks of Wonder Bread. And you know what? We'll Line even throw up. a little we'll even throw a little mayo and mustard on there for yeah. you. Why not? Like just to make it a little more palatable. One one wonderful thing that's happening in the world is the nationwide general strike in India that uh, had over two hundred thousand participants in it. Trade unions across the country called for a nationwide strike against alleged anti-working class policies of the Modi-led government. Wow. And uh, was it successful? Did uh, direct action get the goods? A lot of things got fucked up. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) A lot of business ground to a halt. Uh, I don't know that Modi has has really changed a whole lot in, in response to it, but uh, they just definitely, matter of time. They definitely disrupted some shit. Yeah, I, you know, I like to think so. That's crazy, though. So this was just like m- many unions participating in in a general strike for the purpose of just putting 
you know, the screws to the system and the, the working class and the ruling class alike? Yeah, absolutely. So it was, there were 10 trade unions involved. The strikes took place all over the country in big cities and even in rural areas, farmers across the country under the banner of uh, Lyft Peasant Wings, which I believe is a trade union. So it's pretty, and one thing that's very interesting about India is the stark contrast between like their incredibly dense population centers and then these like rural areas that not only have very different cultural characteristics, but also like the, the economies in those two places are entirely different. So to see both of those types of cultures and economic, like working conditions to come together in a general strike is very interesting. Like it's hard for me to imagine a general strike in the United States that includes like longshoremen going on general strike with corn farmers in Kansas. Like that is sort of fascinating to me. Mm. So there was a 12 point charter of demands from the Joint Committee of Trade Unions that were responsible for this. Uh, One, stop all pro-corporate anti-worker amendments to labor laws. Stop privatization and corporatization of the transport system proposed by the motor vehicles bill. National common wage institute universal public distribution system to contain inflation and price rise. Compulsory recognition of unions and mandatory registration of trade unions. Abolish the contract labor system and, you know, like kind of like very bread and butter stuff that frankly we could use a little bit more of in our country as well. I can imagine it's pretty uh, disruptive but at the same time, like solidarity building and like organization building to pull off like those 250,000 people like working, like, you know, trying to like make enough money to survive and everything else. And then being like, yeah, no, not working these yeah. two days because of shared, you know, material interest and looking to flex their collective, you know, muscle. It also, you know, serves to give the government a little taste of what can happen next time if they decide to do a general strike for longer than two days. And I think that that gives you a bargaining chip as well. Like, Mm. remember when the entire country shut down for two days because 250,000 of us decided to strike? Mm. What if next time it's 400,000 of us and we don't stop? We just strike until you change it. I think that can be a useful tool as well. So yeah, part part like I think political messaging, part like very practical, you know, demonstration of how much the country relies on its workers. And it's it's really impressive for them to have like an entire charter written up as well so that, you know, then that was like something that was sort of a failing of like Occupy Wall Street and some other protest movements in the States was that, you know, without like a document outlining what changes need to be made, mm. it's hard for public sentiment to yeah. support it. Um, there was the uh, the the articles of occupation or whatever that had yeah. the, um, the, the list of grievances. That Those was were about- sort of... I- I think too little too late for the media to yeah. really give a shit about. Mm. But yeah, I mean, that, that, I think that's what like horizontal organizing makes difficult. Mm. Yeah, it, it certainly uh, makes it uh, not incredibly swift. <laughs> <laughs> Democratic process is not known for its uh, speed. No. Let's close out with uh, some very exciting news out of the agricultural and genetic industry. It's just genes and industry. Not like yeah, jeans, yeah. like Levi jeans, obviously. Yeah, no, it's a huge industry. There's yeah. like the whole biopharmaceutical thing, which has a lot to do with genetic uh, utilization or utilization of genetic modification to be able to produce, you know, chemicals. And then now... 23 uh, me. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Finding exactly how many, uh, you know, connections between you and Kevin Bacon, uh, you know, just like... <laughs> 
what else? Uh, and apparently uh, doing gene expression alteration in some classic vegetables. Yeah. So scientists... Fruits? Fruits? Fruits, yeah. Scientists say they're close to making a spicy tomato. This is very... So I really love tomatoes and I love spicy things. And like a spicy tomato, I mean, I would eat that shit like an apple. Like, that sounds so <laughs> exciting to me. It's like salsa just wrapped in a skin. Oh, man. It rules. <laughs> So apparently, tomatoes diverged from peppers about 19 million years ago. And the tomato still has a recessive gene that can produce capsaicin. Interesting. So yeah, so scientists are trying to induce this capsaicin gene to actually start producing, you know, the, the chemical that makes things taste spicy. Yeah. And it's pretty, so first of all, it would be very delicious, obviously. But it also <laughs> has some economic benefits because currently... Substances that use capsaicin, like pepper spray, which, you know, it's pepper spray. But yeah, only used against protesters and rapists alike. Or, on, yeah, or would be rapists. Only the people should have the pepper spray. Yeah. Uh, De-pepper spray the police. And re-pepper spray. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but so... Uh, that and also like topical creams, like there's all kinds of uh, kinds of things that have capsaicin in them. But yeah. currently, the only way to make it is through growing peppers. But they're very finicky, whereas tomatoes are an incredibly hardy but fruit that's easy to grow. So these capsaicin tomatoes could have all kinds of economic advantages as well. Huh? That's a spicy tomato. Thank you, because that's exactly what I thought when I first <laughs> read this article. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds pretty dope. I'd be interested in trying that. So, do they get into what they're going to have to do? They're going to have to, like, get in and, like, fuck up some DNA thing or, like, turn on some codon or something like that? Yeah, so there's two methods that researchers are considering using to try to get this recessive gene to express itself. Express yourself, gene. Just do it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's a kind of bacteria that infects plants and can regulate their gene expression. And that bacteria could be tweaked and inserted into a viral vector to reactivate the capsaicin pathway in tomatoes. Okay. And then there's also just good old CRISPR, just gene editing yep. that they're also considering using. So they're, they're exploring the efficacy of both techniques. But researchers are fairly confident that any technical wrinkles could be smoothed over with further testing. So who knows? Maybe we'll have spicy tomatoes in the grocery store in the next few years. Where will they stop? <laughs> you spent so much time asking if you could. <laughs> you never stopped to ask if you should. They're going to just make like a clamato, like half <gasps> clam, half tomato. Dude, I love clamato. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> they really? can make a spicy really? clamato. You, you like clamato? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Do you the not? Uh... To be honest, I don't remember ever tasting it, um, but the idea of drinking whatever clam juice is. <laughs> what? What kind like, of... what's clam juice? Is that like the water that you come take out of it, the clam? Is that like it's fluids? Like, what is a clam juice? <laughs> uh, clam juice is like, I think a combination of whatever, like you have the clams in and the fluid, the clams. I honestly don't know what's in clam juice, but it's delicious. It just doesn't sound like What kind of like New Englander are you that you don't I like clam juice? <laughs> I like clam chowder. Clam chowder is good. Clam chowder has clam juice in it. And I like linguine with clam sauce. That's, That's pretty good. It's the same thing. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know. I just like drinking like a room temperature glass of tomato. Well, clamato is cold. You drink clamato cold. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, but drinking a, a cold glass of uh, 
whatever Brian, <laughs> yeah, whatever Brian, the uh, the the clams are in. I guess if you overthink it, it sounds gross, but it is. I, I think it's delicious. I don't know. I, I really feel, like it. <laughs> I'm not sure that's overthinking. It. <laughs> All right, maybe not. That's, maybe that's it's like not. the most surface level thinking possible. <laughs> Like, what is this? <laughs> well, you're thinking about it at all. And all that's right, the problem. Yeah, yeah. I should just drink it. <laughs> just drink it. It's like Down hot dogs. Hatch. It's like hot dogs. Don't think about it. Well, just, yeah. Just consume. Yeah. Little hot dogs. Oh, I could go for some little hot dogs. But January <sighs> is all about behaving myself. No hot dogs for me. Nice. nice. In fact, I try to contain my hot dog consumption to just summer because um, I really like hot dogs. It's one of my favorite foods. Mm-hmm. But if I don't, like, set some boundaries for myself about when hot dogs are allowed to be eaten. It's just it's hot just, dog season. It can get a little out of control. Yeah. So yeah. only in the summer. So before we close out, um, the rest of this episode is going to be a narration of the first chapter of Peter Kropotkin's The Conquest of Bread, which is a very kind of, it's a very, like, polemic book i would say it's really about like making fiery arguments about the ways that things should be mm-hmm. and especially and could the, be and could be yeah and it's, will about, be. <laughs> it's about political imaginaries it's about building new political imaginaries which i think is really like some of the most important work that the left can do is describing a world that benefits all of us and how, potentially how we get there although i think the left is not quite as good at doing that second part a lot of the time so yeah so this will be chapter one and you'll get to hear some of Kropotkin's kind of, you know, very impassioned arguments for why uh, the proletariat needs to rise up and seize, seize the fruits of mankind's labor for all of us. It's worth noting that, like, it was written in the late 1800s, I yeah, think. Yeah, 1892, I think, was when it was published. So it's very, like, ma- like it's men are doing it and oh, yeah. male and yeah. man. And, and yeah. I think he uses the word, like, savages. Yeah, so, there's a bunch of uh, language that is, uh, you know, we, we, in, we would call problematic. Yeah, in, problematic. If it were written today. Yeah. But, uh, so yeah. I consider, like, kind of editing some of that in my narration of mm-hmm. it, but I ultimately decided not to. And I'll just, like, give that as a, a disclaimer and... You know, just leave it as the original because I don't, you know, it's not like intended. There is at one point he says men and women. It's not intended to be sexist. It's just the way it was back then. So Yeah. And like if you, you have to sort of, well, I don't know if you have to, but a lot of people do um, judge history on sort of a curve with relations about this thing. And, you know, Peter Kropotkin was writing uh, in a time of like universal emancipation and equal equality amongst all peoples. And like his, his root argument, especially at that time was incredibly what we would call feminist or anti-racist or whatever. But the, the language is quite explicitly anti-racist throughout, yeah. throughout the, even just the first chapter and more so as the book goes on. Yeah. Um, and, and just, you know, sort of like mocks the entire concept. Um, but you know, uses the language that was understood at the time. Yeah. And, um, so yeah. So I really hope you enjoy it. Uh, we will do the, the rest of the, I, I, my plan is to do the whole book eventually. And then maybe um, at the completion of these individual chapter narrations, compile it all into just a, a, a full audiobook MP3 that uh, we may put on the Patreon. And then you can just, you can pay a dollar, download it, and then even cancel your subscription right after that if you want to. And then you can share the MP3 with your friends and blah, blah, blah. That won't be probably for a couple of months because I have other shit. It must be done. Yeah, it's going to take a while. Yeah, but, it'll uh, take a little bit, but you'll get the first taste of it at the end of this episode. So I really hope you enjoy it. 
So I think that's about it for us. Yeah. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. At Ironweeds Pod. You can find us on Instagram. At Ironweeds Pod. Oh, shit. And you can email us at ironweedspod at gmail.com. And before we go, I wanted to reply to our good, our dear, dear friend Nathan sent us an email. And I, I already emailed him, but I also told him that I would answer it on the pod. So Nathan writes, hi, y'all. Got a couple questions for the pod. First one is about stray cats. I think this is the only question that he ended up asking. But anyway, it's about stray cats. One's been visiting me, waiting under my car or on the stairs, though it's pretty skittish. I put food out for it a few times, little of salmon, (laughs) veggie dumplings, etc. And I'm pretty sure I'm only one stop on the kitty's neighborhood rounds. Can't tell 100% if it's a stray. I could ask. But assuming it is, should I contact a humane animal service to try to catch the cat and find it a permanent family? Or leave it be and keep feeding it periodically. Thanks for your thoughts. And then a little cat emoji that's smiling. I love it. So I I told Nathan, and you tell me what you think about this, Chris. I told Nathan that depending on what condition the cat is in, that is how I would decide what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, if it looks really healthy, if it's got a nice looking coat, it looks well fed, it's not super skinny, um, then I would leave it. Because chances are it's somebody's cat and they just let it go outdoors and it's probably, you know about the neighborhood like all outdoor cats do just a, a total opportunistic you know take food where it can get it yeah whereas if it looks sickly if it looks mangy if it looks skinny then i would probably um you could call somebody but i think that you're more likely to get success by just getting a live trap and actually trapping it yourself because humane societies don't have a ton of resources and so um they're not going to send somebody out to catch it and mm. you can call animal control, but you have no you have no control over what they then do with the animal. Whereas if you can li- you can catch it in a live trap, and then you can take it in yourself to you know a no kill shelter or wherever you are comfortable taking it to. And there is there is definitely a school of thought that says like capture it and spay or neuter it and then release it um, as like a minimum uh, as a result of if it is a stray or whatever to uh keep the population of strays down that was Um, another thing i mentioned to him was it would also depend on if it was fixed but the only way you would know if it was fixed is if it has balls because if it's a female cat you're not going to know just from visually looking at it if it's so my my advice to him was if it looks like shit or it has balls because if it's not neutered Mm -hmm. Or spayed, mm-hmm. then it really doesn't matter if somebody's caring for it. The cat needs to be fixed. Yeah, domestic domestic cats being on the loose are an absolute like they ravage the environment, the bird populations, all kinds of rodent yeah. populations. All right, so uh, next up is uh, Conquest of Bread, Chapter One. I hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you want to support us on Patreon, you can go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash ironweeds. Yeah, and. Uh... Thanks for everybody who's supporting us and uh, it helps us do extra cool content like this. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Enjoy. Bye-bye. Peace. The Conquest of Bread by Peter Kropotkin. Chapter One. The human race has traveled a long way since those remote ages when men fashioned their rude implements of flint and lived on the precarious spoils of hunting, leaving to their children for their only heritage a shelter beneath the rocks some poor utensils, and nature, vast, unknown, and terrific, with whom they had to fight for their wretched existence. During the long succession of agitated ages which have elapsed since, 
Mankind has nevertheless amassed untold treasures. It has cleared the land, dried the marshes, hewn down forests, made roads, pierced mountains. It has been building, inventing, observing, reasoning. It has created a complex machinery, wrested her secrets from nature, and finally it pressed steam and electricity into its service. And the result is that now the child of the civilized man finds at its birth, ready for its use, an immense capital accumulated by those who have gone before him. And this capital enables man to acquire, merely by his own labor combined with the labor of others, riches surpassing the dreams of the fairy tales of the thousand and one nights. The soil is cleared to a great extent, fit for the reception of the best seeds, ready to give a rich return for the skill and labor spent upon it, a return more than sufficient for all the wants of humanity. The methods of rational cultivation are known. On the wide prairies of America, each hundred men, with the aid of powerful machinery, can produce in a few months enough wheat to maintain 10,000 people for a whole year. And where man wishes to double his produce, to treble it, to multiply it a hundredfold, he makes the soil, gives to each plant the requisite care, and thus obtains enormous returns. While the hunter of old had to scour 50 or 60 square miles to find food for his family, the civilized man supports his household, with far less pains, and far more certainty, on a thousandth part of that space. Climate is no longer an obstacle. When the sun fails, man replaces it by artificial heat. And we see the coming of a time when artificial light will also be used to stimulate vegetation. Meanwhile, by the use of glass and hot water pipes, man renders a given space ten and fifty times more productive than it was in its natural state. The prodigies accomplished in industry are still more striking. With the cooperation of those intelligent beings, modern machines, themselves the fruit of three or four generations of inventors, mostly unknown, a hundred men manufacture now the stuff to provide ten thousand persons with clothing for two years. In well-managed coal mines, the labor of a hundred miners furnishes each year enough fuel to warm ten thousand families under an inclement sky. And we have lately witnessed the spectacle of wonderful cities springing up in a few months for international exhibitions, without interrupting in the slightest degree the regular work of the nations. And if in manufactures as in agriculture, and as indeed through our whole social system, the labor, the discoveries, and the inventions of our ancestors profit chiefly the few, it is nonetheless certain that mankind in general, aided by the creatures of steel and iron which it already possesses, could already procure an existence of wealth and ease for every one of its members. Truly, we are rich, far richer than we think. Rich in what we already possess, richer still in the possibilities of production of our actual mechanical outfit, richest of all in what we might win from our soil, from our manufactures, from our science, from our technical knowledge, were they but applied to bringing about the well-being of all. In our civilized societies we are rich. Why then are the many poor? Why this painful drudgery for the masses? Why, even to the best-paid workmen, this uncertainty for the morrow, in the midst of all the wealth inherited from the past and in spite of the powerful means of production, which could ensure comfort to all, in return for a few hours of daily toil? The socialists have said it and repeated it unwearyingly. Daily they reiterate it 
demonstrating it by arguments taken from all the sciences. It is because all that is necessary for production, the land, the mines, the highways, machinery, food, shelter, education, knowledge, all have been seized by the few in the course of that long story of robbery, enforced migration and wars, of ignorance and oppression, which has been the life of the human race before it had learned to subdue the forces of nature. It is because, taking advantage of alleged rights acquired in the past, these few appropriate today two-thirds of the products of human labor, and then squander them in the most stupid and shameful way. It is because, having reduced the masses to a point at which they have not the means of subsistence for a month, or even for a week in advance, the few can allow the many to work, only on the condition of themselves receiving the lion's share. It is because these few prevent the remainder of men from producing the things they need and force them to produce not the necessaries of life for all, but whatever offers the greatest profits to the monopolists. In this is the substance of all socialism. Take, indeed, a civilized country. The forests which once covered it have been cleared, the marshes drained, the climate improved. It has been made habitable. The soil, which bore formerly only a coarse vegetation, is covered today with rich harvests. The rock walls in the valleys are laid out in terraces and covered with vines. The wild plants, which yielded naught but acrid berries or uneatable roots, have been transformed by generations of culture into succulent vegetables or trees covered with delicious fruits. Thousands of highways and railroads furrow the earth and pierce the mountains. The shriek of the engine is heard in the wild gorges of the Alps, the Caucasus, and the Himalayas. The rivers have been made navigable. The coasts, carefully surveyed, are easy of access. Artificial harbors, laboriously dug out and protected against the fury of the sea, afford shelter to the ships. Deep shafts have been sunk in the rocks. Labyrinths of underground galleries have been dug out where coal may be raised or minerals extracted. At the crossings of the highways, great cities have sprung up and within their borders all the treasures of industry, science, and art have been accumulated. Whole generations that lived and died in misery, oppressed and ill-treated by their masters, and worn out by toil, have handed on this immense inheritance to our century. For thousands of years, millions of men have labored to clear the forests, to drain the marshes, and to open up highways by land and water. Every rood of soil we cultivate in Europe has been watered by the sweat of several races of men. Every acre has its story of enforced labor, of intolerable toil, of the people's sufferings. Every mile of railway, every yard of tunnel, has received its share of human blood. The shafts of the mine still bear on their rocky walls the marks made by the pick of the workmen who toiled to excavate them. The space between each prop in the underground galleries might be marked as a miner's grave. And who can tell what each of these graves has cost, in tears, in privations, in unspeakable wretchedness to the family who depended on the scanty wage of the worker cut off in his prime by fire damp, rockfall, or flood? The cities, bound together by railroads and waterways, are organisms which have lived through centuries. Dig beneath them, and you find, one above another, the foundations of streets, of houses, of theaters, of public buildings. Search into their history, and you will see how the civilization of the town, its industry, its special characteristics, 
have slowly grown and ripened through the cooperation of generations of its inhabitants before it could become what it is today. And even today, the value of each dwelling, factory, and warehouse, which has been created by the accumulated labor of the millions of workers, now dead and buried, is only maintained by the very presence and labor of legions of the men who now inhabit that special corner of the globe. Each of the atoms composing what we call the wealth of nations owes its value to the fact that it is a part of the great whole. What would a London dockyard or a great Paris warehouse be if they were not situated in these great centers of international commerce? What would become of our mines, our factories, our workshops, and our railways without the immense quantities of merchandise transported every day by sea and land? Millions of human beings have labored to create the civilization on which we pride ourselves today. Other millions, scattered through the globe, labored to maintain it. Without them, nothing would be left in fifty years but ruins. There is not even a thought or an invention which is not common property, born of the past and the present. Thousands of inventors, known and unknown, who have died in poverty— have cooperated in the invention of each of these machines which embody the genius of man. Thousands of writers, of poets, of scholars, have labored to increase knowledge, to dissipate error, and to create that atmosphere of scientific thought without which the marvels of our century could never have appeared. And these thousands of philosophers, of poets, of scholars, of inventors, have themselves been supported by the labor of past centuries. They have been upheld and nourished through life, both physically and mentally, by legions of workers and craftsmen of all sorts. They have drawn their motive force from the environment. The genius of a Sagan, a Meyer, a Grove, has certainly done more to launch industries in new directions than all the capitalists in the world. But men of genius are themselves the children of industry as well as of science. Not until thousands of steam engines had been working for years before all eyes, constantly transforming heat into dynamic force, and this force into sound, light, and electricity, could the insight of genius proclaim the mechanical origin and the unity of the physical forces. And if we, children of the 19th century, have at last grasped this idea, if we know now how to apply it, it is again because daily experience has prepared the way. The thinkers of the 18th century saw and declared it, but the idea remained undeveloped because the 18th century had not grown up like ours, side by side with the steam engine. Imagine the decades that might have passed while we remained in ignorance of this law, which has revolutionized modern industry, had Watt not found at Soho skilled workmen to embody his ideas in metal, bringing all the parts of his engine to perfection, so that steam, pent in a complete mechanism, and rendered more docile than a horse, more manageable than water, became at last the very soul of modern industry. Every machine has had the same history, a long record of sleepless nights and of poverty, of disillusions and of joys, of partial improvements discovered by several generations of nameless workers who have added to the original invention these little nothings, without which the most fertile idea would remain fruitless. More than that, every new invention is a synthesis, the resultant of innumerable inventions which have preceded it in the vast field of mechanics and industry. Science and industry, knowledge and application, discovery and practical realization leading to new discoveries, cunning of brain and of hand, 
toil of mind and muscle, all work together. Each discovery, each advance, each increase in the sum of human riches owes its being to the physical and mental travail of the past and the present. By what right, then, can anyone whatever appropriate the least morsel of this immense whole and say, This is mine, not yours? It has come about, however, in the course of the ages traversed by the human race, that all that enables man to produce and to increase his power of production has been seized by the few. Sometime, perhaps, we will relate how this came to pass. For the present, let it suffice to state the fact and analyze its consequences. Today, the soil, which actually owes its value to the needs of an ever-increasing population, belongs to a minority who prevent the people from cultivating it, or do not allow them to cultivate it according to modern methods. The mines, though they represent the labor of several generations, and derive their sole value from the requirements of the industry of a nation and the density of the population, the mines also belong to the few, and these few restrict the output of coal, or prevent it entirely, if they find more profitable investments for their capital. Machinery, too, has become the exclusive property of the few, and even when a machine incontestably represents the improvements added to the original rough invention by three or four generations of workers, it nonetheless belongs to a few owners. And if the descendants of the very inventor who constructed the first machine for lace-making a century ago were to present themselves today in a lace factory at Ball or Nottingham and claim their rights, they would be told, Hands off, this machine is not yours, and they would be shot down if they attempted to take possession of it. The railways, which would be useless as so much old iron without the teeming population of Europe, its industry, its commerce, and its marts, belong to a few shareholders, ignorant perhaps of the whereabouts of the lines of rails which yield them revenues greater than those of medieval kings. And if the children of those who perish by thousands while excavating the railway cuttings and tunnels were to assemble one day, crowded in their rags and hunger, to demand bread from the shareholders, they would be met with bayonets and grapeshot to disperse them and safeguard vested interests. In virtue of this monstrous system, the son of the worker, on entering life, finds no field which he may till, no machine which he may tend no mine in which he may dig, without accepting to leave a great part of what he will produce to a master. He must sell his labor for a scant and uncertain wage. His father and his grandfather have toiled to drain this field, to build this mill, to perfect this machine. They gave to the work the full measure of their strength, and what more could they give? But their heir comes into the world poorer than the lowest savage. If he obtains leave to till the fields, It is on condition of surrendering a quarter of the produce to his master, and another quarter to the government and the middlemen. And this tax, levied upon him by the state, the capitalist, the lord of the manor, and the middleman, is always increasing. It rarely leaves him the power to improve his system of culture. If he turns to industry, he is allowed to work, though not always even that only on condition that he yield a half or two-thirds of the product to him whom the land recognizes as the owner of the machine. We cry shame on the feudal baron who forbade the peasant to turn a clod of earth unless he surrendered to his lord a fourth of his crop. We call those barbarous times. 
But if the forms have changed, the relations have remained the same, and the worker is forced, under the name of free contract, to accept feudal obligations. For, turn where he will, he can find no better conditions. Everything has become private property, and he must accept or die of hunger. The result of this state of things is that all our production tends in a wrong direction. Enterprise takes no thought for the needs of the community. Its only aim is to increase the gains of the speculator, hence the constant fluctuations of trade, the periodical industrial crises, each of which throws scores of thousands of workers on the streets. The working people cannot purchase with their wages the wealth which they have produced, and industry seeks foreign markets among the moneyed classes of other nations. In the East, in Africa, everywhere, in Egypt, Tonkin, or the Congo, the European is thus bound to promote the growth of serfdom. And so he does. But soon he finds that everywhere there are similar competitors. All the nations evolve on the same lines, and wars, perpetual wars, break out for the right of precedence in the market. Wars for the possession of the East, wars for the empire of the sea, wars to impose duties on imports and to dictate conditions to neighboring states, wars against those blacks who revolt. The roar of the cannon never ceases in the world. Whole races are massacred. The states of Europe spend a third of their budgets in armaments, and we know how heavily these taxes fall on the workers. Education still remains the privilege of a small minority for it is idle to talk of education when the workman's child is forced, at the age of thirteen, to go down into the mine or to help his father on the farm. It is idle to talk of studying to the worker, who comes home in the evening wearied by excessive toil and its brutalizing atmosphere. Society is thus bound to remain divided into two hostile camps, and in such conditions freedom is a vain word. The radical begins by demanding a greater extension of political rights, but he soon sees that the breadth of liberty leads to the uplifting of the proletariat, and then he turns round, changes his opinions, and reverts to repressive legislation and government by the sword. A vast array of courts, judges, executioners, policemen, and jailers is needed to uphold these privileges and this array gives rise in its turn to a whole system of espionage, of false witness, of spies, of threats and corruption. The system under which we live checks in its turn the growth of the social sentiment. We all know that without uprightness, without self-respect, without sympathy and mutual aid, humankind must perish, as perish the few races of animals living by rapine or the slave-keeping ants. But such ideas are not to the taste of the ruling classes, and they have elaborated a whole system of pseudoscience to teach the contrary. Fine sermons have been preached on the text that those who have should share with those who have not. But he who would carry out this principle would be speedily informed that these beautiful sentiments are all very well in poetry, but not in practice. To lie is to denigrate and besmirch oneself, we say and yet all civilized life becomes one huge lie. We accustom ourselves and our children to hypocrisy, to the practice of a double-faced morality. And since the brain is ill at ease among lives, we cheat ourselves with sophistry. Hypocrisy and sophistry become the second nature of the civilized man. But a society cannot live thus, 
it must return to truth or cease to exist. Thus, the consequences which spring from the original act of monopoly spread through the whole of social life. Under pain of death, human societies are forced to return to first principles. The means of production being the collective work of humanity, the product should be the collective property of the race. Individual appropriation is neither just nor serviceable. All belongs to all. All things are for all men, since all men have need of them, since all men have worked in the measure of their strength to produce them, and since it is not possible to evaluate everyone's part in the production of the world's wealth. All things for all. Here is an immense stock of tools and implements. Here are all those iron slaves which we call machines, which saw and plane, spin and weave for us, unmaking and remaking, working up raw matter to produce the marvels of our time. But nobody has the right to seize a single one of these machines and say, This is mine. If you want to use it, you must pay me a tax on each of your products, any more than the feudal lord of medieval times had the right to say to the peasant, This hill, this meadow belong to me, and you must pay me a tax on every sheaf of corn you reap, on every brick you build. All is for all. If the man and the woman bear their fair share of work, they have a right to their fair share of all that is produced by all, and that share is enough to secure them well-being. No more of such vague formulas as the right to work or to each the whole result of his labor. What we proclaim is the right to well-being, well-being for all.